ओकेजन to read ruskins unto this last in south africa and this book exercised a very powerful influence on his life and work the bible also shaped his thoughts on social and economic matters while in detention during the quit india movement in 1942 bapu found some time to read marx capital He however wrote extensively on different economic problems facing India especially about unemployment and underemployment and urgent need for organizing khadi and village industries to provide gainful work to idle hands although gandhi ji was not very familiar with modern economic terminology his ideas revealed a pragmatic and rational approach to various economic problems confronting developing countries unhappily there are a number of misconceptions about gandhian economic thought which still prevail in our country especially among the educated classes in the course of this lecture i would make an earnest attempt to deal with some of these misunderstandings and to try to project gandhian economic ideas in a rational and scientific manner the first basic principle of gandhi ji's economic thought was special emphasis on simple living and high thinking gandhi ji was not against raising the existing low living standards of the masses in underdeveloped countries like This india india radio when i showed him the typescript of my book the gandhian plan in sevagram in 1944 and asked him about the minimum standard regarding food cloth and housing which should be incorporated in an economic plan of his conception as compared with the targets mentioned in the bombay plan drawn by some of the prominent industrialists bapu at once replied i would not like the minimum standard to be a bit less than that envisaged by the bombay planners i would however like the same standard to be ensured for all citizens and not merely for a limited number it would be better to give at least half a loaf to everybody rather than allow the privileged sections to eat away the whole loaf leaving nothing for the poorer sections unquote it was this concern for the weakest segments of the people which characterized gandhi ji's approach to planning and economic development Furthermore Gandhi ji maintained that mere economic affluence would not be able to secure a balanced life for the people while every attempt must be made to secure a minimum standard of living for all citizens we should not imitate the highly developed and mechanized countries side by side 
with economic development and progress, proper emphasis should be laid on promoting ethical and spiritual values, both in private as well as public life. I do not believe, observed Gandhiji, that multiplication of wants and machinery contributed to supply them is taking the world a single step nearer its goal. This is I wholeheartedly detest this mad desire to destroy distance and time, to increase animal appetites and go to the ends of the earth in search of their satisfaction. In one of his earlier brochures, Hind Suraj, Bapu gave expression to similar ideas. I quote, we notice that the mind is a restless bird. The more it gets, the more it wants and still remains unsatisfied. The more we indulge our passions, the more unbridled they become. Our ancestors, therefore, set a limit to our indulgences. They saw that happiness was largely a mental condition. It was not that we did not know how to invent machinery, but our forefathers knew that if we set our mind after such needs, we would become slaves and lose our moral fiber." Unquote. Gurudev Rabindranath Tagore expressed similar thoughts in his inimitable language. I quote, Of what avail is it to add and to add and add by going on increasing the volume or pitch of sound we can get nothing but a shriek. We can get music only by restraining the sound and giving it the melody of the rhythm of perfection." Unquote. Even Cortilla, the distinguished Indian thinker of the fourth century BC, who is renowned for his worldly common sense, wrote in his Arthashastra, quote, the aim of all sciences is nothing but restraint of the organs of sense. Whosoever is of reverse character, whoever has not his organs of sense under his control, will soon perish, though possessed of the whole earth, bounded by the four quarters. He further stressed, true happiness could be found only in dharma. Sukhasya mulam dharma. To an oriental mind, these ideas appear to be rational and convincing. But in the developed countries, these notions are taken to be visionary and based on philosophical sentimentalism. Gandhiji did not entertain a shadow of doubt that India must progress according to her own genius and ancient culture and plan for a progressive economic system which would make for greater prosperity without eroding the qualities of simplicity and higher values of life. I was astonished to read in a recent issue of the American journal Life that a number of boys and girls from the United States and Europe are now living in the caves of Matala in the Crete Island. When interviewed by a journalist, these young men remarked that they had come to the caves to clean out their minds. Some of them further declared, I quote, we are going back to America. We are going to find a piece of land somewhere, maybe Northern California, and set up a commune with some other kids and farm it and have an outhouse and a goat 
but no TV. The children won't miss it. We are not rebelling against affluence. We are rebelling against how people handle affluence." Unquote. The cold-blooded murders in the United States, more especially of President Kennedy and his brother Robert, and of the distinguished Negro leader, Dr. Martin Luther King, this is have shaken the Western world to its very foundations. Recent researches and investigations have indicated that the culprits themselves do not know why they committed these heinous crimes. The new science of psychobiology has revealed that these criminals, due to excessive indulgence, have lost control over their minds and nerves. These experiences confirm the basic thought behind Indian philosophy that human beings could never derive true happiness out of material prosperity alone. A distinguished Indian economist, Professor J.K. Mehta, head of the Department of Economics, Allahabad University, has also come to the definite conclusion that, I quote, the conflicting urges in men find their peaceful solution in the state of wantlessness. And he adds, let us not pamper our wants. Let us subjugate them. Let us conquer them. Man's ultimate objective is to be and to remain wantless. That is the truth about our economic life. I also recall a talk we had in the Planning Commission with the eminent American economist, Professor Galbraith, some years ago. He had returned from an extensive tour of Latin American countries. In the course of our discussions, the learned professor remarked, quote, I was deeply pained to see the appalling poverty of the masses in these countries. While in India, I have always found some kind of a luster in the eyes of the poor peasantry. But poverty in Latin America countries is indeed dismal and uninspiring. When I questioned him about his statement on India's poverty, Professor Galbraith explained, quote, I have seen in the faces of the poor people in the Indian villages a spirit of self-reliance and moral fortitude which in a sense enriches their poverty, unquote. We must not do anything to erode this spirit of self-help and cultural stamina of our rural masses. In addition to this stress on simple but meaningful living, Gandhiji underscored the inherent right of every able-bodied citizen to secure gainful work for his livelihood. The basic problem which India has to tackle with a sense of urgency is the question of unemployment and underemployment. Our Constitution has also guaranteed the fundamental right to work. All the world over, full employment is regarded as the primary aim of economic planning. Gandhiji had strongly pleaded for khadi and village industries, even in the pre-independence period, mainly for providing productive work to millions of our people who suffer from enforced idleness. While formulating the Gandhian plan, which was published in 1944, I one day in Sevagram requested Gandhiji to specify his ideas about the use of machinery. 
He emphatically declared, I entertain no fads in this regard. All that I desire is that every citizen of India who is willing to work should be provided with employment to earn his livelihood. If electricity or even atomic energy could be used without ousting human labor and creating unemployment, I will not raise my little finger against it. I am, however, still to be convinced that this would be possible in a country like ours, where population is large and capital scarce. I do not think any modern economist would find fault with this clear enunciation of Gandhiji's views in regard to the policy of mechanization in developing countries like India. Bapu further remarked, if the government can provide full employment to our people without the help of village industries, I am prepared to wind up my constructive work in this sphere. While discussing this problem with the members of the Planning Commission in 1951, Acharya Vinoba Bhave went to the extent of saying that if the state could find other avenues of employment for all able-bodied persons, he would have no hesitation in burning his wooden charkha to cook one day's meal. It is therefore highly unfair to dub Gandhiji's ideas about Khadi and village industries as fadist and utopian. The crucial point is, are we in a position to ensure full employment to our people even at the end of the proposed fourth five-year plan? According to the latest calculations of the Planning Commission, despite all schemes to be incorporated in the fourth plan, the number of unemployed at the end of the period is likely to be of the order of 28 million. From all accounts, this is not an overestimate. It is, in fact, a conservative figure. I think time has come when we must face this question squarely. We cannot afford to play with it any longer. We should either be in a position to offer productive work to any citizen who is unemployed and ask for it, or we should be willing to grant him a dole or a monthly unemployment allowance because Gandhiji always said that it was better to give work rather than doles. Pandit Nehru also emphasized the same view. So far as I can see, without the fullest development of khadi and village industries in the country, we will not be in a position to guarantee full employment to our people. It is indisputable that we should make concerted efforts to improve the existing technology by utilizing modern science and research. We should strain every nerve to make the village and rural crafts more productive and efficient. It would, however, be unreasonable to expect these smaller industries to compete successfully with the large-scale sector which, curiously enough, receives sizable financial assistance from the state. The examples of the textile and sugar factories in India are quite revealing in this respect. The state could go all out to help the small village and cottage industries to the maximum possible extent by reserving certain spheres of production to them and extending credit, marketing and technical facilities. If we are not prepared to undertake a big program for these decentralized industries, 
Are we in a position to grant doles to the registered unemployed? Even if we provide such doles to 10 million unemployed persons during the fourth plan period and pay each of them a meager amount of one rupee a day, the annual expenditure would total up to 365 crores. Can we afford this? On the other hand, if we earmark, say, 500 crores this in the form of a revolving fund for the organization of cottage and village industries during the next few years and take some concrete policy decisions to reserve spheres of production and evolve common production programs, I am confident that we will make a visible dent on the problem of unemployment and underemployment in our country. I am happy to know that at present, the Khadi and Village Industries Commission, with a total rotating capital of about 56 crores, is able to provide gainful employment to 24 lakhs of workers. Significantly enough, a recent Gallup survey in the United States disclosed that 78% of the people favored a guaranteed work plan rather than a guaranteed minimum income plan or doles. In India, a system of providing work rather than monetary grants is all the more desirable because our cultural tradition from time immemorial has been based on the dictum, he who eats without labor is a thief. I vividly remember several scenes which I witnessed in the flood-affected areas of Odisha and Bihar some years ago. The people had lost their valuable crops and the mud huts had been washed away together with their belongings. They stood before us almost naked in extremely difficult circumstances. They did not ask for rations and cloth. Instead, they demanded work in the form of some rural industries. I was indeed deeply touched by this hardy and courageous attitude of the people. We do hope and pray that these golden traits of character of the Indian masses will not be gradually liquidated by this our acts of omission and commission. <laughs> Evidently, the government will have to take up the responsibility of using up the products of Khadi and village industries, partly by direct consumption in various state departments and partly by encouraging the people to patronize these goods as a matter of national duty. The extra money spent on the purchase of Khadi should, in fact, be regarded as some kind of a voluntary unemployment tax to be gladly paid by the people for the people. Even prominent British economists like Professor G.D.H. Cole have conceded in unambiguous terms that, I quote, Gandhi's campaign for the development of the homemade cloth industry, Khaddar, is no more a fad of a romantic, eager to revive the past, but a practical attempt to relieve the poverty and uplift the standard of the Indian villager, unquote. In his latest publication entitled The Asian Drama, the renowned economist Professor Gunnar Medal has strongly defended Gandhiji's program for the protection and promotion of cottage industries in the villages. He observes, I quote, the development of industries 
in direct competition with existing cottage industries would take work and bread away from millions with no immediate alternative source of employment or income. This would not be rational from a planning point of view. I do hope that we would try to revise our ideas about Gandhian economics in the light of Professor Mirdal's significant observations. This is it is painful to find that despite the three five-year plans after the achievement of political independence, we have not yet been able to solve the problem of hunger and food shortage. We have still to import millions of tons of food grains from foreign countries. This is not only undesirable from the economic standpoint, but also risky from the angle of national defense and security. There is no denying that the union and state governments have already taken a number of steps to augment agricultural production in the country. Even so, I think we will have to import Gandhiji's sense of urgency in achieving food self-sufficiency within the next few years. Whatever programs were undertaken by him, Bapu injected down-to-earth seriousness in them. I very well remember how in 1945, when the nation was faced with acute food shortage, Gandhiji made a number of suggestions in the columns of the Harijan for increasing farm production. He had indicated that all available land in the country, including the spacious lawns of the then Viceregal Lodge, should be utilized for growing food crops. One day, as usual, Kasturba was washing Gandhiji's feet after his return from the evening walk in Sevagram. The bucket of water after this wash was daily thrown into a bed of roses nearby. Bapu looked at me and remarked, these roses planted by Kasturba herself in the context of our food problem are indeed a luxury for the ashram. Why should we not replace them with a strip for growing wheat? And I found the very next day that this had actually been done. During his stay in Ahmedabad for a number of years, Gandhiji had evolved a sound labor policy for the country. The Textile Labor Association has been working hard to implement these Gandhian ideals in the sphere of labor during the last two decades or so. Bapu laid stress both on rights as well as duties of the working classes. The wages of workers must necessarily be linked with increased productivity. If they go on demanding higher wages and DNS allowance without working harder for raising industrial production, the price level of consumer goods is bound to show an upward trend and follow a vicious circle. Gandhiji had emphasized on many occasions that the country should promote greater use of farmyard manure and green manures for enriching the soil. While there could be no objection to using chemical fertilizers for increasing farm production, the fact remains that these artificial manures must be properly mixed with compost manure in order to achieve a proper balance. Some years ago, Panditji had sent me to Japan to study the techniques of agriculture there and find out how that country was able to grow 
about three times the produce per acre as compared with the Indian yields. I toured the Japanese villages extensively and was surprised to find that the farmers were using compost and farmyard manure in a big way along with chemical fertilizers. In fact, there was a pre prevalent saying in the Japanese countryside that excessive use of artificial manures was good for parents this but bad for sons. On seeking an explanation, I was informed that heavy doses of chemical fertilizers resulted in a few bumper crops in the beginning, but depleted the fertility of the soil sharply in the following years. Gandhiji had assigned a prominent place to the improvement of cattle for strengthening agriculture. He had drawn up a detailed program for what he called Goseva, but we did not follow this program in a systematic and scientific manner. In consequence, certain elements are making a political capital out of people's sentiment for cow protection. In Japan, I was astonished that even in areas where tractors and power tillers were being widely used, the farmers were gradually turning towards the cow. When I asked them the reason for this switchover, the peasants promptly replied, Sir, the tractors give us neither milk nor manure. The Japanese farmers use the cow for plowing the fields as well. Every ounce of compost manure is fully utilized for enriching the soil, and milk is increasingly used for organizing dairies and the manufacture of a variety of milk products through small-scale industries. About six years ago, a team of German experts had been invited by the government of India to suggest a rational scheme for the introduction of improved agricultural implements. After an extensive tour, the team had a brief discussion with us in the planning commission. The leader of the team curtly told us, we are not in a position to recommend any improved farm implements for India. Your cattle are so weak and infirm that they will not be able to draw these heavier implements this at all. all India, India should therefore from. launch a scientific program of animal husbandry before thinking in terms of improved farm appliances. These instances lend an edge to the plea that the cow should be developed as the basic unit of our rural economy and prevailing sentiments in our favor should be harnessed for enlisting the active cooperation of the people in this sphere. It is often assumed that Gandhiji was against the use of machinery as such, both in agriculture as well as industry. This is an erroneous notion and has caused unnecessary misgivings about Gandhian economic thought. Bapu had categorically declared that he would prize every invention made for the benefit of all, and that he would welcome the machine that lightens the burden of crows of men living in cottages. What he was really against was the craze for machinery and its indiscriminate multiplication. He explained, quote, mechanization is good when the hands are too few for the work intended to be accomplished. It is an evil when there are more hands than required for the work, 
as is the case in India, unquote. It is significant to know that even in highly prosperous America, 40 million people are poor and unemployment afflicts one out of every 20 workers, its incidence being cruel in urban Negro ghettos and rural backwaters. The prospect of automation threatens to make the economic situation much worse. Professor Galbraith terms poverty in the United States not only annoying, but a disgrace. In the Soviet Union, the problem of unemployment owing to specialization and automation has assumed significant proportions and systematic efforts are now being made to further develop subsidiary enterprises and industries in agriculture. Professor Arthur Lewis has also deprecated the high capital intensity of the modern sector and has condemned irrational preferences for spending lavishly on structures for using the latest techniques and for large rather than small units of operation. It is generally claimed that modern mechanization would ultimately provide larger volume of employment through what is called its spread effects. This assumption also has been repudiated by Professor Meadal. He has definitely asserted that spread effects of large-scale industries are more than neutralized and negatived by what he called the backwash effects. He says, there is a real risk that the slight increase in demand for labor on new modern enterprises will be more than offset by reductions in labor demands in traditional manufacturing. The learned economist concludes, quote, there was an essential element of rationality in Gandhi's social and economic gospel and the programs for promoting cottage industry as they have been evolved in the post-war era have come more and more to represent purposeful and realistic planning for development, unquote. Each country has to solve her problems in her own way and not imitate in a blind fashion the economic planning techniques of the highly developed nations. While we should always be willing to learn from the experiences of others and improve our existing techniques of production, we should not remain under the delusion that the machine alone could work miracles. Machine has to subserve the interests of man. It should not be permitted to make man merely a cog in its wheel. Efforts are being made to develop middle or intermediate technology for underdeveloped regions for adapting the machine to special requirements. Further, by organizing the physical labor of millions of our people into a vast constructive force, both in cities as well as villages, we can press into service under democratic conditions what the renowned American sociologist Lewis Mumford terms in a different context a mega machine or a labor machine. The scope of organized voluntary labor in developing countries like India is to be sure enormous. 
several modern thinkers in Western countries have termed the existing economic situation in developed countries as the tragedy of mere affluence. The modern industrial structure with large-scale mechanization has given birth to a few giant business corporations which tend to reduce even the state to a subservient position and bind the establishment to what Professor Galbraith in his latest this publication called recording. The New Industrial State, a techno structure consisting of specialists, planners and technicians. In order to avoid the perils of such an industrial system, the professor recommends the strong assertion of what he calls the other goals, so that the new industrial state would become responsive to the larger purposes of the society. These goals must necessarily be cultural and spiritual in accordance with Gandhiji's ideals and programs. Above all, Gandhiji instilled in us the spirit of Sudeshi, which was basically a sense of self-respect and self-reliance. He desired us to stand on our own feet without too much dependence on others. Unfortunately, we very much lack this Sudeshi spirit in our national life today. Although there is no harm in seeking limited foreign assistance for our economic plans, especially the technical know-how, Excessive reliance on external aid would ultimately sap our energies and corrode the essential spirit of self-help. I am therefore delighted to note that the Planning Commission has now strongly recommended in their approach to the fourth plan that a major objective should be to move towards self-reliance as speedily as possible. My observations on Gandhian economic thought would not be complete without dealing briefly with the concept of trusteeship. It is often alleged that Gandhiji, by advancing his trusteeship theory, had retarded the forces of a revolution in the economic sphere because the capitalists could not be expected to function as real trustees of their own free will without legislative compulsion. Bapu had discussed this matter at great length with his secretary, Sri Pyarelal, during his detention in the Aga Khan Palace. He had also approved of a draft on trusteeship, which does not exclude legislative regulation of the ownership and use of wealth. Thus, under state-regulated trusteeship, I quote, an individual will not be free to hold or use his wealth for selfish satisfaction or in disregard of the interests of the society." Unquote. Gandhiji only wished to give one more chance to the owning class to reform itself in the faith that human nature is never beyond redemption. Bapu did not recognize any right of private ownership of property except so far as it may be permitted by society for its own welfare. After the dawn of freedom, a significant step in the direction of trusteeship is Acharya Vinoba Bhave's Gramdan movement, which has made considerable headway during the last few years. Under this movement, 
at least 75% of the landowners of a village surrender their proprietary rights to the community and donate one twentieth of the land for redistribution among the weaker sections. The remaining land is cultivated by them on behalf of the Gram Sabha. It cannot be sold or mortgaged without the specific permission of the village community. The people also earmark one thirtieth of their annual income for the village development fund. So far, about 60,000 villages have adopted this mode of community life on the basis of self-help, a sense of trusteeship and cooperative endeavor. This Gramdan movement, according to Professor Gardgill, is an unprecedented movement with many and complex implications and very great potentialities. Louis Fisher has described it as, I quote, the most creative thought coming from the East. Acharya Vinoba has often called Gramdan as a defense measure insofar as it tends to strengthen democracy at the grassroots and makes people self-reliant and conscious of their obligations to the community. It is unfortunate that this great movement has not yet been able to create a visible impact on our national life despite its immense potentialities in several spheres. Instead of diffusing this non-violent revolution rather thinly over the wide area, it would perhaps be better if a few compact blocks or districts could be selected for intensive work of reconstruction. And finally, I would like to repeat that to Gandhiji, man was the highest consideration, and anything which ran counter to the moral values of life was an anathema to him. He had often asserted that politics without religion was mere dirt. Similarly, Bapu believed that true economics never militates against the highest ethical standard, just as all true ethics to be worth its name must at the same time be also good economics. True economics, said Gandhiji, stands for social justice. This it promotes the good of all, equally including the weakest and is indispensable for decent life. Although Gandhiji was not an economist in the professional sense of the term, we must candidly recognize that his economic ideas, instead of being old-fashioned and utopian, are very much relevant to our times and, in a sense, even far ahead of us. Romain Roland regarded Gandhiji's spirit as the perfect manifestation of the principle of life which will lead a new humanity on to a new path. Vincent Sheen calls him the wisest and the best, a man who had no equal in our time. Uthant reiterates that Gandhiji's philosophy has a meaning and a significance far beyond the confines of his country or of his time. Professor Einstein recognized the Mahatma as the miracle of a man, so much so that generations to come would scarce believe that such a one as this, ever in flesh and blood, walked upon this earth. 
I have often felt that Gandhiji was, in more senses than one, a truly atomic man in an atomic age, a glorious triumph of moral and spiritual powers over all the material forces that the world can boast of. May we be worthy of this great master who was born on the Indian soil but soon became one with the human family and was ultimately attuned this to the infinite. This is All India Radio Thank Archives you. Report.